take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Um, I do appreciate Dr. Cushman jumping in, and he is right. I, I don't know if you remember Dr. Cushman, but I worked at Northland Camp, and one summer, me and a few friends attended uh, Grace Baptist Church of Iron Mountain, meeting in a storefront. It was a church plant, and uh, Dr. Cushman was involved in that with another one of the faculty members there at uh, Northland. It was really enjoyable. Those kind of situations are, are something you, could, you should jump into. When I was... Uh, um, the summer before, the summer I got married to my wife, I was a second year seminary student, and I did an uh, internship. It wasn't a paid internship. I actually worked custodial for Intercity Baptist Church and then helped out with a church plant in Monroe, Michigan. My wife and I both did, and we were engaged at the time. It was just a great opportunity um, to get involved and do the things that maybe I wasn't that good at, but I got to do them, leading, singing, uh, even preaching. I remember I preached my first sermon in a church there, and there was a visiting family visiting at the church. The next day, one of the people that were visiting tried to take their life, and they were ended up in the hospital. And that that's not meant to be funny. It's meant to be kind of sobering. I was preaching, and I didn't know, you don't know who's going to be there. And you give a, a gospel message and, and trust the Lord to work in lives. And, and we had a lot of great times there. My wife and I sang our first duet together at that church. It was our last duet also. <laughs> she, was, she was playing the piano. Uh, I was singing, and we were both singing at the beginning, and she started laughing, and, and uh, I kept singing it, so it was my first duet and my first solo, and the last of both. And uh, so that, you know, church planning is awesome, and uh, I would definitely encourage you to, to get involved in a church plant if you have the opportunity. We're going to talk today about disciplining ourselves for for godliness. Um, I want to ask you, is it worth it to discipline ourselves for godliness? Uh, one writer, I was reading some, uh, some interesting things about how people felt they could be more godly. One writer said, fringe group in Amer- groups in American Christianity have for almost two centuries, and I think probably further back than this, advocated dietary and hygienic practices designed to curb sin, to make them more godly. Uh, one person named John Harvey Kellogg, anyone ever heard of Kellogg's? His brother actually started the, the cereal company. He was a Seventh-day Adventist, and he invented cornflakes as a meatless breakfast food designed to reduce the animal drive, the moral behavior. Uh, if you eat cornflakes for breakfast, you probably don't have much pleasure in your life. Um, he thought a bland diet devoid of alcohol, coffee, tea, tobacco, condiments, and largely devoid of meat would cause a reduction, a reduction of the animal in man, which would be passed on to their children, and people would grow up with less original sin because of that. In- incredible to think about that. Um, less original sin was also the purpose of graham flour. You ever heard of graham flour? You ever eaten a s'more, a graham cracker? This is from graham flour developed by Sylvester Graham. He was on the faculty at Oberlin College. Still with us in graham crackers, this flower is. It was designed and used at Charles Finney's Oberlin College to protect students against vile affections. Uh, Finney, to his credit, later disavowed this approach, but, but for a while they actually changed the meal plan in the dining common at Oberlin College, implementing this graham flower as part of the diet. Uh, they hoped it would curb sin. 
People do a lot of things to curb sin. Uh, thank you, Dr. Han, for aptly setting this up last week, talking about the, 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 um, the nature of asceticism and, and forbidding marriage and how that is really has its roots in demonic doctrines. Um, it's something that is not, does not produce godliness, and that was really a setup for, for this week's message. What about this? Does your diet increase your godliness? And how, if not, how do you become more godly? Now, I don't want to discount diet. Diet's important. Profits a little bit, just like exercises. We'll see. But is this really the means toward godliness? Godliness is a very important topic for the Apostle Paul. Very important. As a matter of fact, he speaks on it many times. This word is used 15 times in the New Testament, 13 times by the Apostle Paul in his pastoral epistles, and nine times in this epistle of 1 Timothy. So it's a recurring theme in our chapel messages. As you'll see, godliness is important uh, to the Apostle Paul. And these pastoral letters are really the last of the ones that Paul is writing. So he is particularly concerned that the readers make their growth in godliness and the evaluation of their godliness an important pursuit. It should be an important concern to them to be godly believers in the church. He wants them to represent Christ clearly with their lives. He wants them to be rewarded fully both in this life and in the life to come when he meets them in heaven. He has a pastoral desire for these people to experience all that God has for them in their life. This word godliness is an active word. It's not a removal from things, as, as Dr. Hand addressed last week. It's an active word. It's in the accusative form here. It's a description of those who perform godly acts. It's not an appearance. It's not a state of being. It's not having a glowing halo around your head like the Madonna and child paintings that we see. It's not having your hands folded with a bird on your shoulder like statues of St. Francis of Assisi. I call him St. Francis the Sissy that, that my neighbor had up in Allen Park, right? It's not that, that's not godliness. It's active piety. It's not a state of doing without, it's a state of, of being. It's a state of action. As one writer, Kent Hughes, has said, the godly among us are those people whose reverent worship of God flows into obedience throughout the week. Only God-struck doers of the word can be termed godly. And this is part of the reason Paul spoke so strongly against those who thought they were being godly by abstaining from things, from marriage or certain foods, through ascetic practices. They think they're being godly by not doing these things. However, one becomes godly by active pursuit, not with reckless abandon, not with ruleless liberty, but a disciplined pursuit of Christ-likeness. And so that's what we want to really address today. Our theme for our message is good servants of Christ are faithful to a good diet and to godly discipline. We're faithful to maintaining a good diet and to godly discipline. Here in 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 10, we see Paul use these two pictures for us in our instruction today. Let me read these verses. Paul says, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. Constantly nourished, that's that picture of diet, on the words of the faith and the life, the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of a little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, 
who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. The first point Paul brings before us here in this passage is that we must maintain and provide a well-balanced diet. This is what we will have to feed ourselves upon in order to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. It makes sense why he would have these two pictures, diet and discipline. Any Anyone who has tried to exercise, tried to discipline themselves without a proper diet finds they soon run out of energy, run out of the ability to produce the effort to, to gain the, uh, the benefit from, from exercise. And so Paul gives us a very practical picture here of, of maintaining a well-balanced diet. Paul says this, that we are constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of sound doctrine. Constantly nourished. And, and as those who minister the gospel and minister the word of God to others, we, we recognize the need to, to be constantly nourished on the truth of God's word. We should, first of all, be aware of and avoid what is spiritually unhealthy. That's really the context of, of, of what Paul is saying here. Uh, things that are spiritually unhealthy may be worse, even toxic to someone's spiritual well-being. Being. That is that we reject and correct error uh, when we see it. I mean, Paul's not really talking about literal food here. He's talking about being nourished on, on the Word of God. And as an effective servant, a good servant of Jesus Christ, no matter what our role, but especially if we're in pastoral ministry, Paul's primarily addressing Timothy as a pastor or one training pastors, we need to be aware of and avoid that which is spiritually unhealthy for both ourselves and for our people. Paul tells Timothy he will be a good servant if he does this. Good servants of Christ have a balanced ministry between both teaching what is true and confronting what is false, right? If you're a kind of pastor that says, I'm just going to major on the positives, you're not going to have a balanced ministry. You're not going to be a good servant of Jesus Christ. I remember watching Larry King interview Joel Osteen. It sticks in my memory and at a particular time and place, and Larry King's uh, no longer living, but but he interviewed Joel Osteen. He said, I notice you never talk about sin. You never use the word repentance. And Osteen answered King. He says, it's, you know, Larry, and in his little, his voice, his kind manner, you know, he said, Larry, it's just not my style to talk about those things. Well, Joel Osteen, I think we all know, is not a good servant of Jesus Christ. He doesn't address sin. He doesn't call for repentance. He doesn't point out the errors of false doctrine. He's not a good servant of Jesus Christ. Kent Hughes says, essential to a health-giving spiritual diet is certainly the rejection of spiritual junk food. We have to be the kind of pastors that are willing to point out what is both good for people and what is bad for people. Good servants of Christ point out errors because we have the discernment of knowing where those things lead. Paul uses the phrase here, pointing out, um, by pointing out or in pointing out these things to the brethren, You'll be a good servant of Jesus Christ. This word pointing out suggests that's from what we get the word hypothesis from. It's, it's that if, if you believe these things, if you follow this path, if you, if you follow this teaching, it's going to lead somewhere. We hypothesize that, that believing these truths, supposed truths that are being taught by these ascetics earlier on in the chapter, will lead somewhere. And Paul says a, a good servant of Jesus Christ recognizes the danger of these teaching. We have an investigative attitude that with wisdom looks at the road which false teaching places someone upon. We see where the path of false teaching 
strays from the truth. We understand the dangers that that practice, that belief and practice will lead to. And we're willing to point those things out to people. We recognize that there are wolves among us in the church and wolves outside of us that would seek to devour the sheep. My mind was drawn to Paul's instruction to the elders of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, verse 28 through 31. He said, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And he's made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood, this valuable church of God. It's your responsibility to guard them. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. If you're going to be a good servant of Jesus Christ, an effective minister of the word as a pastor, and in whatever role you minister the word, you must be on guard. You must be on the alert. You must be pointing out these things, the dangers that are both outside and inside the church. Good servants point out errors because we have a discernment of knowing where they lead. Good servants also are aware of what is truly healthy and what is dangerous. Paul gives us little, this little quip uh, in verse 7. He says, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. I know that can sound on its surface to be kind of negative toward women, right? It was more of a sarcastic quip that Paul was using that was common in their day. Uh, old wives' fables, I think the King James might translate it. It's the understanding of people that have a lack of discernment that will believe almost anything that is said to them. And Paul says we have to be aware of these things. Uh, we want to be careful to know what people are believing, what people are hearing, what people are saying. Uh, these are worldly fables as opposed to, to godly truths, a very clear contrast, a very clear contrast there. Worldly in that they're of the world as opposed to godly from God. Uh, worldly fables, they're not true as opposed to godly truths that are sourced in God himself, the author of all truth. We need to be very careful to be aware of these things. And I'll turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2 if you want to. Paul repeats this similar instruction in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 um, and following. This is we sometimes known as the Awana verse, right? Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God, not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And then here, here's this, this uh, parallel truth, but avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying the, the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. So Paul is telling Timothy again in 2 Timothy 2, be aware of these kind of people that are going to teach these kind of false teachings, and they're going to, they're going to destroy people. They're going to lead them astray. They're going to cause division in the church. They're going to cause um, damnation for the souls of people under your charge. Be aware of them. There is certainly implied in this, in this passage a sense of, of pastoral awareness. And I want to, to encourage you, even wherever you are right now, whatever church you're serving in, whatever people you have some kind of ministry over, 
especially those of you that are engaged in pastoral ministry or heading that direction, that that there is implied here a sense of pastoral awareness. There's a sense that Paul knows Timothy, knows the people to whom he ministers, or the people that Timothy is equipping in Ephesus. They're to know the people to whom they minister. They're to know them really well. A pastor must know his people well. He must know what is important to them. He has to know what they're thinking. He has to know what they're being exposed to. He has to know what they're believing. He has to know what they're spreading. Pastors have to spend time with people. They have to be engaged in their life. Even today, we have to be engaged in their social media. I mean, you you may be here, man, as a pastor, who wants to waste time on social media? Well, as pastors today, and as people who minister to people, you have to be connected with people so that you know what they're thinking, you know what they're believing, you know how they're behaving. Paul encourages Timothy to be connected with the people. Certainly don't be dominated by social networking, but be connected with people and have discernment to pay attention to what they're doing, what they're believing, what they're saying, and certainly have the courage to address those things when they rise to the surface. Don't address them on Facebook. Address them individually. Okay, go and talk to them about them. Point them out, and if in doing so, you'll be a faithful Good servant in these areas of concern. Good servants are willing to point out error. And good servants feed on and provide a steady diet of good spiritual food. Paul says that Timothy is constantly nourished on the words of faith and of sound doctrine. He says, which you have been following. Good servants feed on and provide a steady diet of of good spiritual food. This nourishment is ongoing. New American Standard introduces the word constantly in italics, but to give the idea that this is an ongoing nourishment that is taking place. Ministers are always speaking out of the overflow of what God's doing in their own heart and life. Um, I had people ask me when I served in student care the last uh, seven years, first seven years I was back here at Bob Jones, how, how did you maintain any sense of you know personal um, steadfastness in the midst of constantly ministering to people in the counseling office. And it's true, we would, we would see people hour after hour after hour, day after day in the, in the office, and, and often doing counseling for 30 hours a week. And that's a lot of time to spend counseling with people. And, and my ready answer, and sometimes my failure, but, but when God in his grace would help us to see ministry done to people, my answer was, We have to minister out of what God is ministering to us as counselors of the word. If you're not receiving the ministry of the spirit through the word yourself, you're going to quickly run dry when it comes to to pouring out into other people's lives, very quickly. But it was amazing in God's providence how often um, you would sit down with someone and they're dealing with an issue, maybe you met with them four weeks in a row, and how often something you heard in chapel that day would actually be specifically what they needed to hear from you in that hour. Or how often something you read that really maybe didn't make it into a lecture on anxiety, something you read in your own personal devotions was exactly what they needed to hear because the Spirit put that in your life that day for that person, for that hour, and for your benefit as well. And I just want to say we have to be, as good servants of Christ, constantly nourished on the Word of God ourselves. Our nourishment is is ongoing. We must be very aware of minimalist Christianity, which says we just minister in busyness, but we're never ministered to by the word. Our nourishment is received from external sources. This nourishment is a passive participle. We're gaining nourishment from outside of ourselves. 
We're not just constantly ministering out of whoever we are. We're gaining nourishment through the Spirit, from the Word. We're gaining nourishment from the preaching and teaching of the Word as we sit under it. We're gaining nourishment from the fellowship we enjoy with brothers and sisters in Christ as they speak the truth into our life. We're gaining nourishment from all these, all of these means. Put yourself in the path of the nourishment of God's Word regularly and continually. And our nourishment is certainly on the truths of the faith. It says words of faith. This is not a word of faith, you know, not like a special revelation, something charismatic. These are the words of the faith. These are the words of, of the scriptures. These are the words of sound doctrine that we have, we have come to understand and are continually nourished on. This is absolutely necessary for us as good servants of Jesus Christ. Our nourishment is on the historic apostolic teaching of God's word. You've, you've been around long enough, all of you, to know how religious trends come and go. I remember when the emerging church was a big thing about 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Uh, now egalitarianism is a big teaching. Uh, the, the acceptance of homosexual marriage is something that is new and, and fashionable among liberal denominations. In all of these things, usually the argument is the teaching of God's word is some way bound by the historic culture or it was due to a misunderstanding of the apostles or maybe that's not really what Paul meant or maybe it's, it's, it's given for a very, very specific situation. I, I read an article yesterday about um, an Anglican bishop that's advocating for homosexual, the acceptance of homosexual marriage in the Anglican church and, and he basically says the teachings of Paul about homosexuality are are very narrowly contained. They're, they're, they're dealing with abusive or slave-based relationships. They're not dealing with what we could consider as committed, monogamous, marital, homosexual relationships, which is actually a good thing, he says. And, and he's not following the apostolic doctrine. He's not interpreting the scripture faithfully, and he's probably not being constantly nourished by the word of God. We have to be aware of these things. We have to be convinced that God's word is true and God's doctrine is right. We must be nourished on the word of God and provide that nourishment to those to whom we minister. The second picture is that of working hard to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. We have to have a good steady diet that leads to godliness. and We also have to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. He says that starting in 7, halfway through verse 7, on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. We must work hard to discipline ourselves for godliness. Now, this might surprise us a little bit coming in this context of, of Paul kind of very being very critical of asceticism, of giving stuff up. Often we think of discipline as giving something up, and, and often it does include giving something up. Paul says asceticism, thinking we can give something up in order to be godly, is wrong. It's the doctrine of demons. But pursuing godliness is the is the supernatural outflow of belief in Christ and the gospel. And so we must pursue godliness. We must discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. What do we need to do? Paul says, discipline yourselves. A pretty simple command, right? Could be translated, exercise yourselves unto godliness or train yourself for the purpose of godliness. It's an active verb to discipline or to train with the object being ourselves. It has the idea of, of leaving it on the court. Now, in its context, this word was used of the, you know, the, the Greek Olympians. They would literally leave it all on the field, right? They would exercise themselves with no clothing. 
And, and that's not exactly what Paul means, but he says it's a command to be active in disciplining ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Have you ever trained yourself to do anything? We probably have in here some musicians. Probably have in here some scholars, know different languages, learn theology, some PhD students, and certainly we have several who already have those degrees. You've disciplined yourself to do something. I grew up in Indiana. I remember Dr. Sidwell may, may be familiar with this, a, a man named Steve Alford, who was from Newcastle, Indiana. He was a great basketball player in high school and in college, didn't do so well in the pros, but he shot 100 free throws every day so that he would be able to, in game time situations, hit free throws, and he had one of the highest free throw percentages of his time, shot over 96% from the free throw line. I remember going to a basketball camp in Newcastle as a fellowship of Christian athletes camp, and his brother, Sean Alford, was actually one of the coaches for the camp. And he said, you know, my brother Steve shot 100 free throws a day. I rebounded 100 free throws a day. <laughs> so he said, I'm good at rebounding. Uh, he always had to go out and rebound his older brother's free throws. Have you ever disciplined yourselves for the purpose of something that is meaningful? Some things, spiritual things, should come naturally. If they don't come naturally, then they're not really spiritual. Uh, the discipline seems legalistic. However, make sure you're, you understand there is a, a difference between legalism, which means we earn our right to be approved by God through something we do, and discipline toward godliness, which means we love God enough to discipline ourselves to be more like Jesus Christ. Those are two very different things. One says, I do this because I want God to accept me. Others say, I do this because I love God. I want to be more like God. Uh, one of my favorite books on prayer is written by Isaac Watts. It's called A Guide to Prayer. It's a great little booklet. I talk about it in my pastoral theology class. Um, Watts gives instruction to a group of young men. That's the purpose of this book. It's a collection of his instruction to, to teach them how to pray more effectively. That's basically what it is. He says in this Guide to Prayer, he says, How excellent and valuable is the skill of praying in comparison with the many inferior arts and accomplishments of human nature that we labor night and day to obtain. Think of all the things that people give themselves to. I mean, shooting basketball free throws. Of what eternal value does that really have? But 100 free throws a day, and I think Alford has a profession of faith, and that's good, but what eternal value does that have? He says, how many years of our short lives are spent to learn Greek, and Latin and French, maybe Hebrew too, that we may communicate among the living nations or understand the writings of the dead. Shall not the language in which we converse with heaven and the living God be through worth, be through equal pains as that? And Watson's making the argument that, that learning how to pray more effectively and working hard at it, developing it as a discipline, and learning and growing in, in your ability to do better and better at it is worth far more than many of the pursuits we, we pursue, whether it's music or whether it's a discipline or a language or, or another study, another ability to accomplish. We can pray more effectively if we work hard at it, if we discipline ourselves for it. That's kind of an unusual thing for us to think about sometimes because we kind of think, oh, prayer is kind of spontaneous or extemporaneous, but, but you can actually pray more effectively if you work at it. And you can certainly increase in your ability to pray effectively, especially in leading your church in prayer. Discipline is work worth the hard work. What's in it for us? What is the purpose of this disciplined effort? And he says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And really, the last thought I want to leave with you is 
is this. Is it worth it to be more godly for you? Is it worthwhile for you to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness? Discipline of this nature produces godliness, both knowing the content of God's word more so you know the mind of the Lord as you discipline yourself to study the word and living out the word in application as you become more and more godly, as you live your life in the local church and in the society in which we are. Is this discipline worth it? And Paul says, yes, it is. This discipline for godliness is profitable. He says that in verse 8. God, for he says bodily discipline is only of little profit. I remember we were raising money for the Fremont Fitness Center. I was a student back then. I remember Dr. Bob saying, you know, uh, bodily discipline, discipline profits little, but it does profit a little, you know, and so we were raising money for the fitness center, right, because it does profit a little, and he's, he's right about that. It does profit a little, but, but it's very small in comparison to the discipline of godliness and its profitability. Godly, godliness gives us both temporal and eternal benefits. Paul gives us this illustration by comparison of the profit of bodily discipline, which is small physical training, Physical exercise has some profit. It provides great advantages to those who do it. But in time, its profit is shown only to be a little. Even Arnold Schwarzenegger, with all his muscles, it's not going to profit him that much. As he gets older and older, he probably realizes that, right? Just takes up more room in your T-shirts. This one is profitable for all things, or really, as Paul says, in every way. And that's the way the ESV translates it. In essence, what Paul's saying is that discipline to godliness is a far superior quality. It is way more worth the effort and time than physical discipline. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, I saw a tweet by uh, Jason Allen yesterday quoting Jonathan Edwards. I said, that goes right along with my message. He says, a true and faithful Christian does not make holy living an accidental thing. Edwards says, it is his great concern as the business of the soldier is to fight so the business of the Christian is to be like Christ. We should discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. And the answer to the question, why is this so important? Paul says it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Discipline that produces godliness holds the promise for the present life. It's good for us in this life. It benefits us now. What is the chief end of man, the catechism asks? To glorify God. Right? And everything we do, whether we eat or drink and whatever we do, we do all to the glory of God. Charles Spurgeon preached, preached a message on the profit of godliness in this life. He said, with regard to this life, let it be remarked that the religion of our Lord Jesus Christ neither undervalues nor overvalues this present life. It does not sneer at this life as though it were nothing. On the contrary, it ennobles this life and shows the relation which it has to the higher and eternal life. It does not overvalue it by making this life and the secular pursuits of it the main objective of any man. It puts it into an honorable but yet secondary place and says to the sons of men, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things shall be added to you. He said there are many that undervalue this life. Let me mention some of them, and I'll just mention one of them that he mentions. Those undervalue this life who sacrifice it to indulge in their passions. For instance, to gratify their appetites. Too many, for the sake of momentary gratification, have shortened their lives and rendered their latter, their life bitter and painful. 
They conceived that the pleasure of the flesh were better than life. They were mistaken in their estimate. They made a poor exchange when they choose lust or death rather than purity and life. The drunkard has been known to take his cups, though he knew in so doing he was poisoning himself. A man of hot passions has been seen to plunge into uncleanness, though the consequences of his folly have been plainly set before him. Spurgeon says there are many who, who make nothing into this life, pursue passions, and then, and then they sacrifice their life, the enjoyment of this life. But those who live godly do enjoy this life. We bear the fruit of the Spirit. We walk in the Spirit. We're not enslaved to carnal passions like we were before we knew Christ. We enjoy living the godly life as we live it, as we discipline ourselves to live it. It benefits us now. It also benefits others through our gospel witness. Just briefly, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for nothing. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I think what Jesus was saying there is that effective Christian believers are strong salt and bright light. And as they live godly lives in front of the, the, the dying putrid culture or in front of the darkened culture, they're going to make a difference. People will be touched by the salt. They will be shined upon by the light. And they may come themselves to glorify the Father through our good works. Godliness benefits us and others in this life. But it benefits us for all eternity, the life to come especially. Uh, rewards for godly living, as we are rewarded for being those who faithfully serve the Lord in our judgment, that's one reward. But it leads to or toward a, a greater enjoyment of heaven. How many people have you seen that says, man, the godly life is so restrictive. So I'm just going to live like I want to live, even though I have Christ as my Savior. And, and our answer to that, of course, is you're probably not going to enjoy eternity so much if that's your attitude now. You're going to be spending eternity worshiping the Lord and serving, serving one another and, and enjoying fellowship together. Godliness is a staple of Christian life. Paul says it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. And, and finally, I'll end with this. Our disciplined effort is the logical and theological outgrowth of our placing our hope in the Savior. And that's what verse uh, 10 talks about. He says, for it is this we labor, for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. This discipline unto godliness is not just self-effort. It's a result of having fixed our hope on God, our Savior. Uh, it's similar to what Paul says otherwise, that Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's at work in us, and we discipline ourselves to work for God as well. We're thankful for God's gracious work in us. And this discipline for the purpose of godliness is an evidence of God's special work in our lives. Paul ends up saying here in verse 10, we fix our hope on the living God who is a Savior of all men, but especially of believers. Now, I'll let you write a paper for systematic theology on that verse. The Savior of all men, especially of believers. It's interpreted in various ways by various people. Certainly in this context, God is the Savior of men, not men saving themselves through ascetic practices. That's very clear in the context 
of this passage. Some believe this is a temporal, eternal distinction, as Homer Kent does. That is, to all men there are some temporal blessings, but to those who believe they have eternal blessings. But the word Savior is used here, and I believe it has to be explained salvifically in some way. And so I believe that God is the Savior of all men in prospect. Christ's work on the cross is sufficient to save all who would come to him in faith by believing But that work is effectually accomplished in the life of the elect. Those who are saved experience the work of God both now and eternally. And so that's that's my interpretation of the matter. But nonetheless, don't miss the big picture, the fact that our hope is in God and in Christ our Savior. And everything that we do in this life is for the purposes of glorifying and serving him and comes from his gracious work in our life. And so keep a diet of good doctrine. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, and so prove to be good servants of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text, and and thank you for this challenge that Paul gives to us to, to love your word, to grow by it, to be constantly nourished on it, and then to give ourselves to disciplining ourselves for the purpose of godliness, both because it brings benefit to us now and certainly eternally. It brings benefit to others as they see our life lived for you, and it's a testimony of the gospel to them. And overall, God, we thank you so much for being our Savior, for sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross, to pay the penalty we could never pay, except eternally, to live a life of righteousness that we could never live, except through him. Thank you for saving us, and I pray that we will share this gospel with others. In Jesus' name, amen.